The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 211. We are in our fifth year of podcasting, and we hope that we have given you some particle of hope and let you know that help is available because that's our purpose. You know, when a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, drug-free, evidence-based, step-by-step program to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. It's an anonymous call. They're there to help you. So give them a call, 1-866-231-5924. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Mark Owens. At 12, Mark started smoking pot. At 17, he started shooting coke and heroin. By the time he was 25, he had been to prison twice and arrested countless times. This chapter of his life ended when he was arrested for a bank robbery and dozens of other robberies in Maryland. Today, Mark is an active real estate investor in the Baltimore, Maryland area, and he's been doing that for the last 15 years. He's married to his high school sweetheart, and he is the owner of a thriving real estate investment company. He loves inspiring others to live their best lives by sharing his story of how he came from being a homeless junkie to living a life beyond his wildest dreams. Let's talk to Mark Owens. Mark Owens, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and share your story. Joni, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you providing me with the opportunity to share my story in hopes that, you know, I'm able to inspire some people to to make some positive changes in their life. I really appreciate it. Well, it's truly our pleasure. And I will just say right up here up front, I believe you said you are 30 plus years clean and sober. And I'm just going to start right off saying very well done you. It's 30, it'll be 31 years in April. Yep. Yep. Very well done. What day in April? You know, I was in jail, so it's kind of hard to remember. Oh. It, was, it, was, it was either April 20th or 22nd of 1990. Okay. I, it, my birthday's the 17th. That's just why I well, was mine, asking. Mine I thought if it was my birthday. So. <laughs> okay. Anyway, take us back to the beginning and tell, tell our listeners how you got started on drugs. Okay. So I grew up in Baltimore City in a blue-collar neighborhood. And it was, you know, like, I guess 1977, I was about 12 years old the first time I smoked pot. And up until that point, uh, you know, we'd had like drug education in school and all that. And, you know, you know, they tried to scare us with these stories and these pictures and, and it worked, you know, for me, I thought, man, I would never do that. You know, it's like, that stuff sounds like it's really like, you know, have a horrible life. And uh, the first chance I had, one of my 12 year old friends asked me if I wanted to smoke some pot and I did. And I didn't even hesitate. And that's when I look back at myself and I just like think like, what the hell was wrong with you? I mean, like you knew better, 
but I didn't hesitate. And the reason why was because, and, and I didn't realize it at the time, and it took me up until really just the recent years to really put it all together, that is I wanted to fit in. You know, I wanted to be part of the pack. And all of my friends, at the, even at the age of 12 and 13, were smoking pot. And, you know, if, if you weren't, then you were, you know, kind of an outcast and, you know, like there was something wrong with you. And, uh, and most kids, you know, were vulnerable at that age and I didn't want to feel like that. So I just thought, all right, well, I'll go with, you know, nobody pressured me. I mean, it was just, but I had the opportunity and I thought, well, this is my chance to fit in. I wasn't great in sports. I wasn't great. I wasn't a great student. Uh, and so I really, I didn't have any other clicks. And so when this opportunity presented itself, it was, I mean, I was just right in. You know, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just for a second, but it is such a horrible thing at 12 years old to be different in any way, right. to be different. And I, I can see exactly how that would have occurred to you. I mean, yeah, you don't want to be different. You want to fit in. And who doesn't want to fit in? I mean, come on. We all want friends. We all want a group. We all want something. So I get it. Yeah. So that's that's the way it started. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we ended up moving from Baltimore City to Baltimore County, which is an adjoining jurisdiction. It's just more, at the time, it was more rural instead of like, you know, row houses, we, we had townhouses, which to me is the same thing, but it, it was a lot more open space and stuff like that. And uh, we moved out there for better schools. And because my parents knew I was like starting to screw up. And, uh, mm. and so once we got out there that I, you know, I think I, I started smoking cigarettes when I was 12 too. I might've started smoking cigarettes before I started smoking pot. Hmm. And, uh, and then I started drinking. I was probably maybe 12, 13 years old and I started drinking. And then and it's just like so many other stories and then other opportunities to try different drugs come up, you know, whether it's, it was back then it was Valiums and Quaaludes and Speed and then eventually uh, mushrooms and acid, uh, inhalants, like, you know, anything that contained Toluol or Toluene, like spray paints and things like that, that were you know really terrible for you but at the time you think you're going to live forever so you don't you're not even really thinking about consequences to anything and then event so you were sniffing spray paint oh, yeah. i think you're the first one that's talked about that on the podcast oh yeah and, um, yeah interesting it's i mean people think that it's like why would you do that the truth is it's it's far more powerful than lsd is i mean like i mean i remember at one point like i was sitting next to my best friend doing it and i for some reason, I thought he was a cop. And I asked him, I said, are you a cop? And he said, yeah. And I punched him in the mouth. <laughs> we, started, <laughs> we started rolling around in the mud, you know, and after like a couple minutes, we're like kind of coming out of this dream that we're in. And uh, he realized he's not a cop. And I realized he's actually my best friend. And uh, but it gets you that like out there where you literally you know, you're seeing things that really aren't there, you know, and uh, anything from leaves detaching from trees and floating off to, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So that's, that's why people do it. And, uh, and then eventually, I guess I was about 17 years old. I was over at the same guy's house and I saw his older brother, uh, in the basement doing a shot of something. And I said, man, Steve, what is that? And he says, it's Coke. 
I was like, well, how much is it? And he said, $25 for a quarter gram. So I'm thinking, I got $25. I said, can I try it? And then that was it. You know, my friend tried to talk me out of it. And I thought, yeah, I'm good. You know, I would always, I'll quit before it gets that bad. And uh, Famous last yeah, words. I know, I know it. And, you know, all those years I wanted to be like everybody else. And it turned out I, I was like everybody else that was an addict. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't realize it at the time. And so I uh, started shooting Coke at the age of 17. And I think right around my 18th birthday, I tried heroin for the first time. Wow. And that... I mean, there was a lot that happened between 12 and 18. I, got, I failed the 10th grade. Uh, I wound up in a serious car accident where my parents asked me to go into a, like a psychiatric unit for adolescents for drug stuff. And I agreed under the condition that they would take me out if I wanted to leave. And they agreed. And after a few months in there, you know, I just, I attempted to escape they wouldn't let me out. I, I had told them, I said, I want to leave. And they said, no, we're not taking you out. And I was like, okay, I'm a little defiant. And uh, I attempted to escape. I, you know, I assaulted one of the doctors and then my parents just said, okay, we're going to get you out. Yeah. Cause I told him, I was like, look, I'm coming out one way or another. You either bring me out and fulfill your promise to me, or I'm just going to bust out and do what I feel like doing. And it was a terrible position to put them in, but you, in my, you know, 15, 16 year old brain where I think I know everything, it seemed like the right decision for me to make. Just out of curiosity, Mark, did they, did they give you like prescription meds while you were in there? No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't oh, having, okay. I didn't have any, back then, this is like 1980, okay. we didn't have the same understanding of addiction that we have now. You know, so back then it was, it was just completely different and they, they just, they didn't have the understanding. I think they've come so far in their, you know, understanding of what, what it is. It's not, you know, I mean, some people, of course, they have some type of psycho psychological issues and they have addiction issues. I didn't have the psychological issues. I just had the addiction issues, which resulted in a lot of trouble, but I didn't have any, you know, anything that required help other than getting off the drugs and alcohol. As soon as that happened, you know, my life turned into something completely different. Right. Okay. So your parents um, finally came and got you. Yes. Next. And then uh, I got back to my neighborhood and went back to high school and I'd went to summer school for two years in a row. And I was uh, in night school while I was in my senior year, I was trying to catch up so I could actually graduate on time since I failed the 10th grade. And during that time, now we'll come back to this story, but I, I found out that this girl in high school, somebody told me she liked me and it's a girl that I'd had a crush on for years. And I just couldn't hmm. believe it. I'm like, I'm such a loser. Like there's no way that she likes me. What I didn't know is that she didn't know how much a loser I was. <laughs> it's like, you know, so uh, we ended up, we ended up dating and for maybe three or four months. And I, I reached a point where I knew, like, I just reached the point where I knew like, I'm going to go to jail or I'm going to OD or I'm going to get shot. Like something bad is going to happen. And she is going to go to college and have a career and, and have a good life. And I can't take her with me and I can't go with her. So I, I ended up, I broke up with her and, uh, I still feel really terrible about it when I, you know, when I go back and talk about it, but, uh, I broke up with her and I just made up some excuse, you know, I heard that, you know, I think I told her that I heard she was like 
you know, get a cheat on me or something like that. Just some BS excuse. Because the truth was, at the time, I realized that, but I wasn't, I realized what the real reason was, but I wasn't able to verbalize it. Like my brain, like I could see all the pieces, but I couldn't put them together well enough to express it. Right. And so I just reacted by my feelings and just made up some excuse to break up. And uh, there is that story does turn out to have a good ending. But so we broke up and, uh, you know, that was in the 11th grade. And then in my senior year, November of my senior year, I got kicked out of high school for, you know, and this is, this was the issue. It's like, I was always caught in class. I was going out, breaking into houses, stealing cars, you know, getting high, drinking, uh, whatever I could get my hands on. And the assistant principal called me down to the office and told me that if I cut one more class, he's going to you know, kicked me out of school with a recommendation for expulsion. And then they gave me my pass back to class and I walked right out the front door. That was me. It was just like, you know, daring him. And uh, my parents wouldn't let me quit. And I just thought, okay, well, if you're not going to let me quit, then they're going to have to kick me out. And that was it. So I went home, packed my stuff and then uh, left the note on my kitchen table to my parents' house where I was living. And then I moved back in with my grandmother that lived back in the neighborhood where I grew up back where the drugs were harder and, you know, and that's when things really got out of control because I had no, how do I put this? There were no rules. Like I could pretty much do what I wanted to do. And uh, so there was no structure. And I, I tried to get my stuff together. I mean, at that age, I got my GED, like maybe four or five months after I got kicked out of school, I went and took the GED test because I thought I would do want to have a diploma and I'm not going to remember any more three years from now than I remember right now. So I better hurry up and go take the damn test while I still remember this stuff. I passed the GED test and I tried to, uh, you know, like get jobs that I couldn't hold down. And at the time, this was like 1982, 83, there was a recession going on. And of course, when you're 17, 18 years old, you don't know what a recession is. And so there weren't right. really any good jobs. So I'd, you know, work at a gas station or you know, just stuff like that, minimum wage with no future. And it, I'd, it wouldn't have mattered where I worked anyway, because as soon as I got paid, I'd, you know, I'd be running out and, and doing my thing. And uh, so it progressed from that point, I guess, around the ages of 18, I started to realize that, man, you know, it's like every time I ever got in trouble, there was drugs or alcohol involved, like every time. And it used to be, the thinking used to be that the drugs and alcohol was a symptom of the problem. And I came to realize that well, the drug and alcohol is the causes of my problems. And that's like, you know, whether I'm kicked out of high school or losing jobs or stealing from people or lying or getting arrested again, it was always drugs and alcohol that were the, the issue. And so I guess it was, uh, I was maybe 19 or 20 and I had my first apartment and I was sitting down at the kitchen table and I was working out my budget. I think I made like $200 a week at the time. That's working 40 hours a week. And I noticed back then a case of Budweiser was $10 a case. I was drinking a case of beer a day and I weighed like 130 pounds. And it, it, I would get off work. I would go buy a case of beer. I would drink usually about three six packs before I went to bed. And then the next morning I would wake up and drink you know, one or two before I went to work, I would come home from lunch, 
because I'd worked literally a block away and I would drink one or two when I came back for lunch and I would come home, I would drink one or two and then I'd go buy another case of beer. And so when my budget, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, $200 minus 70 for beer. And that was the first thing on my list. And that's when, and then it was like, you know, like, you know, rent is at the bottom, <laughs> you know, I'm just, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and that's when I, like, I really started to realize like, man, you know, you, you do have a problem. I mean, like if you're putting alcohol in front of your rent, like that's, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, like, that's not the way that people that aren't alcoholics or drug addicts, like that's not the way they think. And were you still doing drugs at the time oh, or yeah, just primarily yeah, beer? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah oh, I, okay. was, I was doing them. I was selling them. I was, you know, doing whatever it took. And, uh, okay. and it, to me at the time, and this was, you know, I wasn't the product of my environment. I mean, I created my environment. You can always make choices. And I chose to associate with the people that were on the same path that I was. So to me, it seemed normal. It's like everybody shoots coke. Everybody does heroin. You know, all the girls are out on the corners. It's like, that's just what we do. And uh, that's when I first started to realize, like, really, like, man, there's, you know, I got an issue. And it was shortly after that, that uh, I got caught stealing at a gas station that I worked at. And the owner called me in and he sat me down and I'd stole a hundred dollars two weeks in a row. And, and I bought heroin, you know, I had my heroin dealer bought, you know, brought the heroin to the gas station. And I got high while I was working and uh, he caught me stealing and he brought me in and he said, listen, I know you got a drug problem. I'm going to give you a choice. He says, you can either go to some NA meetings or you can go to jail. So I picked NA and uh, I had never, I'd never even heard of it. I didn't even know what it was. And so I, I went to an NA meeting and, you know, he didn't press charges or anything. Obviously I was fired, but I did go to an NA meeting. It's probably, if it wasn't that night, it was the next night. And so I'm listening to the person up the front of the room telling their story. And the guy was uh, talking about how he was shooting heroin in his neck. And sometimes he couldn't find a vein. And I remember listening to that thinking, man, that guy's got a problem. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I'm not that bad. I don't shoot in my neck. I shoot it in my arm. Right. And, uh, right. I'm not shooting it between my toes. Right. I'm just shooting it in my arm. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, now I realize how like, you know, comical that is and ridiculous, but at the time when you're in the middle of this, the addiction, like, you know, what makes sense to me now was completely opposite back then. And, uh, so I kind of compared myself out and then over the next couple of years, you know, I, I had been, I went to, you know, a drug rehab. It, it was at Shepherd Pratt. It was a 60 day program. And it was mostly to, uh, to just kind of, you know, drug addicts were really good at this. Like we'll, we'll do anything it takes to get out of trouble without any real intention of changing our lives. Just, we want to get out of this jam that we're in and then we can get back to doing our thing. And so I went into this drug rehab kind of with that intention. And then, uh, after that, when my parents asked me to go to like, I think it was a 90 day program, might've been six months and it was more like a three-quarter way house where you were in there most of the time, but you would go off site to go to meetings and you could work your way up to where you could drive like the house vehicle to meetings and stuff like that. So I agreed I would go there and I thought, you know, I got nothing to lose. You know, it's like, it's, I have a place to sleep and some food to eat, you know, it's because I, I didn't have any other friends that all my other friends were drug addicts that were still active. So I didn't have anything to go back to. So I thought, I'll try this. 
And after a month, I had driving privileges where I could like drive to a meeting. And I took the car. And instead of driving to a meeting, I looked at the guy that I was with and I said, man, you want to go to the York Mall and uh, hang out? And I'm thinking like, I want to get to talk to some girls walking around the mall. And he, uh, he agreed and we went to the mall and I ended up meeting a girl and getting her phone number and he didn't. And the next day he told on me and then I got kicked out of that. And, uh, you, know, you know, that was tough. You know, like my parents had to come pick me up, but you know, it's like, Jesus Christ, you're kicked out of it. How do you get kicked out of a three quarter way house? You know? And, uh, and I was just so used to, you know, like being a fuck up that it just, to me, it wasn't anything unusual about it at all. I was just like, Hey, I want to go talk to some girls. I got the car. I'm just going to go to the mall instead of the NA meeting. And who wants to go talk to a bunch of girls in NA anyway? They're just as fucked up as I am. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to go. <laughs> some you know people that are a little bit smarter than me and uh and that was my thinking back then and you know eventually it you know things got i mean it was bad then but it got actually worse uh i got stuck in california so things got really bad and my parents asked me to check into a detox and i thought yeah things are really bad i need to check into a detox so they uh they called the shepherd pratt where I was at for my 60 day program. They're like, look, we don't have any empty beds. He can check into one of the state hospitals and uh, they can help him out. So I went to, I think it was Springfield State Hospital, which was, I don't, I don't even think they have them anymore. But it was like a state run mental hospital. And I get in there and I check in and, you know, I realized pretty quick that, man, this is like a psychiatric unit. This isn't like, these people aren't like me. I mean, these people are like, you know, these people are crazy, you know, I'm normal. You know? And, uh, and so, you know, like the next day I went up and I told the, you know, the lady at the desk, I was like, listen, you know, I got to go. I don't belong here. I got to leave. And she says, well, you know, you have to give 72 hours notice. I'm like, okay, well, you got my notice. And then they came in the next day and they said, we're not going to release you. We're going to seek commitment uh, for being homicidal and suicidal. And I was like, I mean, my parents. Where'd they get that idea from? I was I mean, wondering the same thing because I hadn't even talked to anybody. I mean, I wasn't talking to anybody. So, I, I mean, I went in to the, you know, finally get my doctor's appointment. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't even know me. Like, nobody's even asked me why I'm here. And you're diagnosing me with like no information at all. And he's like, well, we have to, you know, wait it out and see, you know, just all this mumbo jumbo crap. And, uh, and I, called my mother up you know and she did she wasn't an intentional enabler but I guess she was in a sense uh maybe she was saving me for myself even by enabling me because I told her I was like well you gotta get me out of here because if you don't I'm going over the fence I don't care if they shoot me I'm getting out of here and uh and she knew from my past that I wasn't you know I don't bluff that's if I say that's what I'm gonna do that's what I'm gonna do and so she called Shepard Pratt, and they agreed to take me back short term if I agreed that I would check into a long term uh, facility. And uh, I said, sure. I mean, I, I would have said anything to get out. So I go to Taylor Manor or to Shepard Pratt, and they, uh, they tell me about this place. I think it was called Tuam Est, and that was in California on the beach in Venice, California, like literally a drug rehab on the boardwalk. I and mean, it was just crazy. 
so who wouldn't say yes to that right <laughs> it's like yeah, that's yeah. Good. and uh you know and then you and then i got there and it was this is how small the world is so you know they want to give you somebody that wants to they have somebody that's going to stay like within arm's length of you for like the first four or five days that you're there so they assigned this guy to me and he comes in a room and i knew him from the drug rehab in maryland like i knew him and <laughs> And so they thought that would be a good fit because we, we were familiar with each other. So it was the second day I was there and I, and I looked at him and I said, Bill, man, I, you know, I feel like leaving. And I was half hoping he would talk me into staying, like give me all these great reasons to stay. And he said, all right, man, let's go. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> and that was it. And we, uh, we grabbed their stuff and walked out the front door. And then, you know, we lived on the streets in West Hollywood for, I guess three or four weeks and like, you know, sleeping in abandoned houses and, you know, eating dinner at, you know, homeless shelters and churches and stealing, you know, just to, wow. and we were getting high. I mean, that's the first place I ever shot uh, crystal meth. I'd never done it before. I hated it. Once I did it, I thought it was Coke and it wasn't. And I was like awake for like 24 hours. Like, you know, I drank 10 pots of espresso. I hated it. And, uh, but that's, you know, we were stuck out there and uh and finally my parents agreed to you know send me a plane ticket and so i flew back home bill got back home and then he calls me up like a month later and he was back in california i was like what the hell are you doing he's like i stole a credit card and i'm out here i got a rental car i got a hotel you want to come out <laughs> you said no right i said sure and I, and it's it was the dumbest damn thing because I said, listen, I want a round trip ticket. Like, don't get me a one way. So I get to the airport and there's a one way ticket. So I flew out and we were partying with the same homeless people we were with before, except now we got a rental car and, you know, and a credit card and a, and a credit card. <laughs> and, uh, and after a week, uh, we ended up losing a credit card. They took it from us at a liquor store. Then we sold the rental car and uh there's some drug dealers <laughs> so we you get sold the rental car yeah. oh no okay yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh you know there's a valuable lesson coming up something that i learned that that is uh that has, stu has stuck with me for for years um so i actually missed a court date and i don't remember what it was for it was either for assault or it might have been breaking and entering I don't remember i think it was for assault and i missed the court date so now i've got a failure to appear and in Maryland, right? In Maryland. Yeah. And you're in California. Yes. And okay. with no money, no credit card, no car. And I, my parents, I'm sure the hell I'm not going to call them up and say, hey, you know, I need a plane ticket. So Bill said. Okay. What happened to your return ticket? Hey, yeah, you know, that was, we never got it. <laughs> we, you oh. know, it's like, we'll get it, we'll get it, we'll get it. We never got it. I and see. So, and I don't know whatever happened to Bill. I never saw him again. I never talked to him again we were in the motel room and he was, you know, he told me he was going to kill himself. And I didn't know if he was serious or not. I didn't want to stick around to find out. And I, you know, I didn't want to say it. I couldn't blame him if he did. I mean, the way I felt about myself and my life, it's like, Oh, that's one way out. And so I left and I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, we didn't have any mutual friends, you know, like back in Maryland or anything like that. So I don't, I don't know what happened. And he's got a very common, his first and last name are very common. So even if I like go look for him on Facebook, there's like a million of them. 
Uh, right. And he might not want to hear from me anyway. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he, as far as I know, he's a doctor now. I'm very successful and he sees my name and he just thinks, uh-oh. So, um, so what happened was I ended up, I decided I'm going to hitchhike home. Had no money. And I got on, I can't remember the names of all the roads, but I think it was 101 and I took that down to five and I took five over to Route 95, which runs along the California, Arizona border. And I took that up to 40 and 40 goes all the way across the country. And I, I remember walking up to this exit and here's a funny thing. People help hitchhikers. People don't hitchhike that much anymore, but I mean, people like this one guy, I'm in the middle of the desert. He gave me a gallon of water and 20 bucks. And I get to Needles, California, and I took the 20 bucks and went and got something to eat and pack of cigarettes. And, and then I, I walk up to this ramp that goes on to 40. And there was a guy sitting underneath of a tree. And uh, he said, man, this place sucks. I've been here for two days trying to get a ride. I'm still sitting here. And that kind of scared me a little bit. You know, it's like my money's going to run out. I don't feel like, like living on this ramp for the rest of my life. Like something's got to happen. And so what I decided, and I, I remember this is as clear as if it happened yesterday. I thought, okay, well, I want to go to the East Coast and I'm not going to get there sitting on my ass underneath of a tree. I'm going to start walking down this ramp. I'm going to put my thumb out. And uh, if people pick me up, great. And if they don't, well, this time tomorrow, I'll be 25 miles closer to home. And I just kept, I just started walking. I probably walked maybe 150 yards. And it was like the first or second vehicle that passed me pulled over. And it was a red pickup truck with an older couple in it. And they said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Baltimore. And they're like, well, we can get you to Kingman, Arizona, which was maybe 30 miles away or something. I said, man, that's great. Like that'll work. And I, I hurried up and jumped in the truck. I didn't want that guy underneath the tree, like running up. Because <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> I just thought, man, that guy's like, he's bad luck. Like, I mean, I got it bad, but he's really got it bad. And I don't, you know, I don't need that. So I jumped in and I remember like him and I like just staring at each other as the truck drove away. <laughs> and I, the valuable lesson that I learned is that when if you want something if you want to accomplish some kind of goal whatever it is like you have to start working towards it and if you're if you're working towards that goal whatever it is it's more than likely you're going more than likely going to get help from other people that want to help you reach that goal if you're just sitting on your ass underneath a tree doing a half-assed job sticking your thumb out you're not showing a lot of motivation or ambition and people are going to be less likely to help you they see me walking down the ramp you know full speed, thumb out. They're like, man, that guy's on a mission. You know, he's trying to get somewhere. Let's help him. And you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or Call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924.
two, four. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Mark, I have to stop you just for a second. Sure. So are you doing drugs while you're doing this or oh, is a, this kind of your rehab kind of uh, sort of? No, that, no, I was doing drugs. I mean, not, oh, okay. maybe not that particular day because I didn't have the money or access to them. But I mean, there were some days where I didn't do drugs, but it was either, you know, lack of money or lack of access. Got it. Uh, I mean, I just walked out of a drug rehab and spent three weeks living in the street and, you know, doing whatever drugs I could get my hands on. So, and, and for this time I was there when I, had a credit card and was, you know, living the same life. Uh, but what I learned from that was that, you know, it's like, you got to work towards your goals. And I didn't even realize that at the time, it wasn't until later on in my life that I looked back on that. And I, and I saw the power of that, like, man, you know, you got to work towards your goals and, and, and let people see that you're really trying to accomplish this and you're going to get more help than if you don't do anything at all. And so uh, another thing that happened during that trip was, uh, I got a so I'm in Kingman, Arizona, and it's a truck stop that I got dropped off at. I just walked up to truckers and I said, "Hey, listen, man, I need a ride east. Are you heading east?" I said, "Look, I'm clean. I got money. It's like, you know, because there's a lot of nasty people that are hitchhiking." And I think like the first or second one I asked, he said, "Sure, I'm heading out to Gary, Indiana." It's like, all right, that's halfway home. And uh, he told me during the time I was telling him I was interested in just kind of traveling around the country, just like being a drifter. And because uh, I really didn't have any direction, I wasn't going to college or anything. I wasn't learning any trades. I just thought, like, you know, I'll just, I mean, I'll go be a carny or something. And I just want to travel around the country and just see stuff and meet people. And he told me to get a job on a horse farm. He said, get a job on a horse farm. You learn how to work with horses. You can go anywhere in the country, get a job. They pay cash and they'll usually give you an apartment. So I thought, all right, well, I'm a city boy, but I mean, I, you know, horses, they can't be that hard, you know figure something out so i eventually got home to baltimore this people don't even believe this but i have no reason to lie i hitchhiked from la to baltimore city in four days people don't believe it but it's like i didn't stop i mean it's like you know this trucker goes and then i got to ride from another guy from there to downtown baltimore and we stopped one night and uh other than that i was awake and moving the whole time we did it i did it in four days uh, a few days after i got home uh, we used to have these things called the yellow pages. I don't think the younger people know about those things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got out the yellow pages and I did what I always do when I'm looking for a job. I turned to horses and I started, or stables or something like that. And I just started calling the phone numbers, asking if they were hiring. And one of these horse farms said, yeah, we are hiring. Do you have any experience? No. All right, well, we got something for you. So I went out there and it was just, I was mucking stalls. You know, they'd say, look, come in, the horses poop, you clean it up. You fill their water bucket, you feed them. Like, I can do that. And they gave me an apartment and they paid me cash. That served me really well for a few months till I ended up getting fired. I, I, one of my days off, I went and broke into a store, into a building to steal money. 
to buy drugs and I got caught and ended up going to prison for 10 months. And uh, a condition of my probation was that I had to get a long-term drug treatment when I got out. I was like, oh man, again? Like I just tried this stuff. And so I, I get out of jail and, and I ended up in Alexandria, Virginia. I think it was called, I think it was called Second Genesis was the name of the rehab. And I thought, okay, well, I got to do this. So I, I stayed there for four months. And then one night I just said, I can't do this anymore. I have to get out. And it was, I think it was like December 20th. And uh, I just walked out the front door and I ended up going out and I got high and did some, committed some crimes. And the next morning after I sobered up, I'm like, man, I got I to gotta get back to that rehab. I just violated my probation. I don't want to get to prison for another four years. So uh, I went back and then they kicked me out. And so I'm out in the street. It's December 20th, 21st, something like that. And it's cold. I've got $8 in my pocket and a suitcase. And my choice is either go back home to Baltimore and get a, get a prison or go somewhere else. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be homeless, if I'm going to live on the street, I want to go somewhere where at least it's warm. And so I started hitchhiking to Florida. And uh, it took me almost as long to get to Florida as it did to get from California to Baltimore. I think it took like three days. And that included like sleeping under bridges on 95. And it was terrible. And I got to I got to Jacksonville, Florida. And as far as I'm concerned, that's Florida. And what I came to find is that's actually like the home for the homeless in Florida because so many people like me decide they want to go there. And then that's the first big city they hit. And they just say, okay, I'm stopping right here. And there's a huge homeless population. And uh I got a job. It's it's a I don't know if I, I don't want to bore you too much, but I was living under a bridge, you know, I was literally sleeping underneath a bridge and looking for a job. And I thought, well, I got to eat. And this is where like drug addicts, we're really good at solving problems because we create a lot of problems that need to be mm-hmm. solved. And so we're, re- yep. we're really good at that. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, I got to get a job, but I'm not going to get paid for a couple of weeks. How am I going to eat if I'm at work all day? I can't go to, you know, shelters and missions and churches because I'm going to be working. So I got this bright idea. I was like, man, I'll work at a place that sells food and then I can eat while I'm at work. (laughs) So I got a job working at a hot dog stand. There was a place called Jacksonville Landing, which was like a touristy type thing on the, I think it was like the St. John's River or something. It was very, it was beautiful. And I got a job working in a hot dog place and uh, ended up all the hot dogs you can eat. And I was, I was, I don't want to say, but I was a hot dog eating mofo. I, you know I mean? It's like, that's like all they sold. And that was, you know, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat them. And, uh, and the issue is they also had, they sold beer. So, I mean, what goes better with a hot dog than a beer? And as it turns out, one of the homeless guys that I'd met told me about a mailman that rented rooms to people like us. What well, turns out the mailman was a crackhead and everybody else that was in the house was, it was like a house full of crackheads. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get myself together. Like I really am. It doesn't look like it, but I'm like, I, like, I got to figure this out. I can't. And then here I am, I'm living, you know, with a crackhead mailman and all of his homeless friends. And I realized that I got to go further South. Like I can't, I can't stay in Jacksonville. I got to get out of here. And, uh, I did something, another stupid thing, you know, another of my many stupid things. 
I wrote a note to the owner of the hot dog stand and said, look, I've worked, I don't remember, 60 hours, times $4 an hour, minus tax. You owe me about 200 bucks. And I took it out of the register and I gave one of the ladies that worked there the note to give to the owner. And then I left. And I was on my way to a train station, I was, or the bus station, I was gonna see if I could get a bus to Ocala, uh, Florida, because it's supposed to be horse country. And I thought I can go there and get a job. And halfway to the bus station, the police pulled up, you know, jumped out with their guns out and arrested me for strong arm robbery. The ladies that worked there emptied the register and then said that I threatened them and stole everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they show you the note? <laughs> you know? I guess not. Yeah, they did. Hey, here's a Patsy right yeah, here. Exactly. We can make him take the fall. Exactly. Ugh. And uh, so I got locked up and then, but it got to court, you know, trial like 60 days later and, and all the stories were unraveling with the people that I supposedly robbed and they ended up reducing it to theft and they let me go. And I was, you know, so here I am homeless again. And I called my grandmother up and she wired me a couple hundred bucks and uh, I thought, okay, well, I can use this to get to Ocala, but I can also like get high before I leave. And I'm just, you know, I was walking, I don't know where I was at, but I was somewhere in Jacksonville and I, I start talking to some, you know, one of the working girls on the street, just talking to her. And she's like, well, you can stay where I'm at. She's renting an apartment. So I, uh, you know, I went and stayed in her apartment and she would go out and do her thing and bring the drugs back. And it was pretty good. I'm just sitting here doing nothing and she's working. I'm getting eyes. It's working pretty good. And then, you know, things started to get bad where she, you know, one of the guys that we were friends with, like he just got his eye, one of his eyes stabbed out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. And I'm just, you know, like, you know, you're trying to keep a straight face when somebody says that, but it's like, you know, inside you're thinking like, man, I got to get out of here. And then she came in one day and said that uh, she was just sexually assaulted in like an alley. And then she says, but they didn't get my rock. And she pulled it out of her bra. And I was like, thinking like, this is like, this is insanity. Like she was just had something horrible happen to her. And all she cares about is her $10 rock. This guy lost one of his eyes, but he's thinking, well, he's still got one eye. And I'm just like, I got to get out of here. And uh, I started hitchhiking. I didn't have any money. So I just said, well, I'm going to hitchhike south and just go down where it's, you know, warmer. Because Jacksonville really wasn't that warm. <laughs> and, uh, and again, I'm thinking if I'm going to live on the street, I at least want to be somewhere where it's, you know, like I can sleep outside without like shivering. And so I hitchhiked south and I got to Palm Beach. And I, I thought, man, I, you know, I get, wonder if there's any horse farms around here. There's got to be some horse things around here. And uh, I looked in the yellow pages and I found a tackle shop that sells horse tackle. And I went to the tackle shop and I asked them and they said, you know, there's a horse show right down the street. You can go there. They might have somebody, you know, that's looking for help. So I, I walked and hitchhiked to the horse show and I walked up to the gate and there was a guy standing there and he, uh, he said, well, do you have any experience? And I said, well, I used to work at a horse farm in Maryland. And he said, well, who, where'd you work? And I said, I worked for a guy named Harry Binkley at Woodgate Farm. And he's like, I know Harry. I've known Harry for years. So this guy ended up hiring me uh, doing, it, it's the funniest damn thing, but I'm doing like security work at horse shows. And, uh, and it involved like walking around in the middle of the night from like eight at night till six in the morning. If the horses got out, you go catch them. If they rolled over on their backs or their sides and they couldn't stand up because the walls were in the way, you got to go back in and flip them back over and 
just keep an eye on the trailers to make sure nobody's breaking into anything. And I got a trailer to live in that towed, I towed it behind a pickup truck that he owned and he paid me cash. And so here I am driving, you know, from Florida to, you know, I think as far north as Vermont for these horse shows, I got a warrant for my arrest. I got a suspended driver's license. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm just thinking, well, this is normal. You know I mean? This is just what people do. Life is good. Yeah. yeah. As I'm eating and I'm getting high. So life's pretty good. Well, what made you want to change all that? I'll, I'll get to that. So, okay, okay. So I ended up, I ended up at a, it was in King of Prussia, near King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. There was a horse show and I was parked in this giant parking lot next to a Burger King. And I was going to the Burger King eating like every day. And I started talking to one of the girls who was working there. And then she ended up coming over to my, you know, my camper. And we hit it off like really well, like really, really well. And I ended up coming down to see her in Norristown. When I had like weekends off, I would hitchhike down or take a bus down to uh, spend a weekend with her. And then ended up, I got down there one weekend and she was doing really bad. She was getting kicked out of where she was staying at. She didn't have anywhere to go. And I was sitting in a bar talking. Of course, I'm sitting in a bar and I'm talking to the bartender. And she says, well, the owner of this place, he's got an apartment on the second floor for rent. It was like 65 bucks a week. And I was like, well, I've, I've had a bunch of money. I said, okay, well, I want to get that. I want to, yeah, here's a security deposit. I think I paid four weeks rent in advance. And I went and gave Dana the keys and said, here, I got you an apartment. You know, I can't live with you. I got to get back to work, but you know, at least you got a place to stay for the next month. And then I ended up coming back and uh, ended up, I got fired from that job and then uh, came back and moved in with her and her and I got together. And I tried to, you know, I tried to get it. I tried to get myself together. And, you know, I was working a full-time job. I was working a part-time job Friday and Saturday nights at a gas station. I was really like trying. I wasn't going to, I'd been to AA, I'd been to NA, I'd been to rehabs. I tried churches and I thought, well, maybe a girl that's not a drug addict in a different state. Like maybe that's the magic formula for me, the secret recipe. How old were you then, Mark? I was about uh, maybe 23. Okay. And so the, uh, it was 1988. So I was 23. It was June 1st of 88 that I met her. And uh, so what happened was I was trying, I was really trying and I just, I couldn't sustain it. You know, I just, I kept going back and doing Coke and uh, ended up fucking up. I'm trying to remember the order of events because a lot happened in a short period of time. It wound up where I got, a, I ended up robbing a store. It was a gas station I actually worked at. And uh, got locked up. After 60 days, I got out on bail. And then her and I got back together. And it was just a couple months after that, that it, this is when things like, I started to reach a turning point where it's, you know, I got another job, spent all the money on, you know, the rent money on drugs. And I had decided that I've got to make a choice here. And so the choice I made was to get rob a bank. That was my choice. And so I robbed the bank, didn't get a lot of money, but I got enough for the rent and uh, came home and then had some money in the kitchen. She didn't know what I did. She didn't know I robbed the bank. I just gave her money for the rent and she didn't, I don't even know if she asked where I got it. And uh, the next morning, 
uh, a sheriff or a sheriff's deputy and a bail bondsman came to our apartment and uh, they were going to revoke my bail because apparently one of my girlfriend's friends told them that I was going to skip town. And so the, I was like, I mean, I was cocky. I was arrogant. I was smart. I was all the, uh, you know, just all the, all that crap. And it was early in the morning when they came knocking on the door. And I remember like looking at Dana, you know, and I'm just like, I'm very polite to the sheriff. Like, okay, no problem. Can I, can I get dressed? You know, I was literally in bed. And so I'm being very compliant and, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm, I'm dressing to run. Like, I'm just like, I winked at her and I'm just like, I'm tying my shoes tight and tucking my laces in and, you know, I'm ready to run. And I, I asked the sheriff, I was like, uh, can I call my grandma and just let her know what's going on? Cause you know, she's the one that put the money up. I don't want her worrying about me. So he agreed. And I'm standing in the kitchen on the phone and he's the sheriff was standing by the entrance to the kitchen that led to the hallway where there's a door that left the apartment and the uh, bail bondsman was up against the door, the other door in the kitchen that led out to the fire escape. And the, you know, I'm just pretending I'm on the phone. I'm not even talking to anybody. And I'm just thinking, I'm just looking at my options. Like, okay, which one do I punch or like, what do I do to get out of this? And then it happened. Uh, the, Sheriff told me to get off the phone. I said, just a minute. He said, get off the phone. I said, just a minute. And he came around behind me and he grabbed my hand while was on the phone. And I spun around and picked him up and threw him over the kitchen table and uh, turned around and down the hall, out the door, down the steps, out into the street. And I ended up, uh, there's a river called the Schuylkill River with like a little running trail and stuff. And I, I got down there. That's where I used to get high. And so I knew that those trails pretty well. And I ran down the trails and uh, there was, I wanted to get to the other side of the river. And it was a pretty big river. And there was a bridge that went across the river. And I'm thinking like, man, I, I can't, that's a long bridge. And I'm sure the police are looking for me. And if I'm on that bridge and they see me, like I got nowhere to go. I'm not going to jump in the damn river. So I went underneath the bridge. I climbed up on one end of it. And then I just kind of shimmied along the girders underneath the bridge till I got to the other side of it. I mean, we're real good. Like addicts are really creative with stuff. Like if we're in a jam, I'm getting that. We're yeah. Figuring it out. <laughs> and uh, there is good news to all this. I mean, those life skills that you get, if you if you can translate those and focus them into doing the right thing, then you can have an amazing life and uh, yep. and be an amazing, decent person in the process. So you know all these things. So I got to the other side of the bridge, and there was actually some train tracks. And there was a freight train, you know, going down. I thought, well, shit, I'm going to jump on that train. I don't know where it's going, but it's away from here. So I'm running as fast as I can along this train, trying to grab onto it. And I, I was running as fast as I could, and I could barely keep up with it. And I thought, man, if I fall, you know, like I'm going to end up getting my arms cut off or my head cut off or something. So I just stopped running and just like, what am I going to do? And uh, I worked my way back to this little town that was... I think it was called Bluebell. And uh, I'm just walking around I'm thinking like, okay, I got to get out of here. Like, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to steal a car or, or what am I going to do? And uh, I saw a car pull up in front of a pharmacy and a guy got out and, and walked into the pharmacy and he left his car running. There's my ride. So I went and hopped in the car, took off. 
and there is a there is a kind of a funny story of this. I'm driving to Baltimore and I'm going down Route One. I didn't want to go down like the 95. And I see a kid hitchhiking. So I was like, I've hitchhiked all over the country. Let me pull over and give him a ride. And uh, we're driving and we're talking. And I, I said, man, I used to hitchhike a lot. And he's, and he's like, oh, did you really? I was like, yeah, I found an easier way. And he says, well, what's the easy way? And I said, steal the car. And he looked at me and he said, really? I was like, yeah, I just stole this one. <laughs> so, of course... That would have been like a great Facebook face pick, you know, profile pick that when his jaw dropped and he realized he's in a stolen car. And, uh, you know, I ended up giving him a ride to where he wanted to go and, you know, dropped him off. And I'm sure he appreciated the ride. And he's, he's probably still telling people the story about it. And then I just head on down the road. It gets worse because the uh, it was like the very next day, the feds kicked in our door for the bank robbery. And I had already left. I'd escaped from the sheriff and the bail bonds guy like the day before. And now the feds invaded, you know, kicked in the door. And uh, so I knew I was called. And th this was like the last month of my active addiction. The I just realized at that point, like, okay, you're done, man. You know, you got your violation of probation. You got a bank robbery. You got this other robbery in Pennsylvania. Like, you're going to be going to jail forever. And so my thoughts were, okay, well, then I went all in. I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to get high until I get shot or OD. Like, that's it. That's, those are my choices, and I'll see how long I can do it. You know, maybe it might be today. might be my last day. It might be next week. I don't know, but that's, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I started robbing stores, and I was, you know, one, two, three a day. You know, I'd, I'd go rob a store, get 500 bucks, go buy a bunch of Coke, get a motel room. And I uh, just kept doing that every day. And it was towards the end, after about maybe three or four weeks of this, there was this giant oil spill in Alaska, the Valdez oil spill, I think it was called. And they were hiring anybody that could come out there uh, to just wipe the oil off the, you know, the rocks and the ducks and whatever. If they're hiring anybody that would come out. So I thought, you know, man, maybe I got to California, like wipe some oil off some docks and, you know, and nobody's going to look for me out there. And, uh, California or Alaska, Alaska. Oh, and, okay. And I was, I was stealing cars like every three or four days. I would, the way I was, and this is like drug addicts thinking like, I don't have a hot wire car. So I got to get it. Like I got to get the keys. So what I decided to do was I would call pizza delivery places and order a pizza and I would give them an address to an apartment building in the area. And I, you do this from pay phones. We had pay phones back then. And uh, I would sit across the street. And when the pizza guy drove up, they always left their motors running. And so they'd get running in the front door with a pizza. And I'd just jump in the car and take off. Oh. And and sometimes there was another pizza in the car. So I get a car oh. and a pizza. <laughs> and, uh, I hope somebody listening is a pizza delivery person and they know not to leave well, their car I, running. I tell them all the time. If, if I go to like a local gas station or something and, you know, people, I see their car running. I said, Matt, I used to steal cars like that. And they always look there at you me. Go. They don't believe there it. There you I'm, go. You know, it's, it wouldn't be my car running. And uh, so. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at 
theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So back to Alaska. You're going to Alaska. You're going to wipe off ducks. That's what I was thinking. And so it's my last day in Baltimore. And I decide, you know, just one more time. I want to go. And this girl I'm going to mention, like, today we're friends and she's sober. And we're, she's <laughs> like, we're best friends. So I call her up. I'm first. sure you have so much history between the two yeah, of you. Yeah. And, you know, she's really yeah. like an awesome person. That's so I called, you know, I went and saw her. I was like, hey, Barb, want to go out and hang out? Let's get a party and get rob another store, get a motel. And, she said, okay, sounds good. <laughs> so we uh so we did that. And then on the way back to the motel, I ran a red light in a stolen car. A cop saw me. Uh I pulled up to this intersection. It was like one o'clock in the morning. And the cops right behind me. And I the star the car I stole this time was a 280Z. It was a guy I left it running at a gas station. I jumped in and took off. And uh, it was a very fast car. And I'm just thinking, man, if I can just, I don't, I don't know where these cars in front of me came from. What the hell are all these people doing out at one o'clock in the morning? Like, what's wrong with these people? And so I'm thinking if I get a chance to pass these people, like I'm going to get away because this car is like really fast. And, and the way that you drive when you're terrified, you know, I'll take risks that the cop won't take. Right. And might die in the process, but at the time you don't care. And uh, at that time, two other police cars pulled up in front of the three cars in front of me so I had no way around them and you know within two seconds like all the cops jumped out with their guns pointed at the car and uh I looked at Barb and I said give me the drugs and I thought like I'm running like I'm not just gonna get out you know it's like they can you know so I, I got out and uh with my hands up and then I just, I, I mean, I still remember it. It's, it scares me to even think about it, but I just remember like I gritted my teeth and I took off running just thinking if, if you, if they shoot, if, you know, if I get shot, just keep fucking running. Like don't stop running because you're going to go to jail for the rest of your damn life. And uh, I started running and eventually, you know, within 10 minutes I got caught, you know, just like, running out of air, you know, and these guys driving around and all and just, you know, it's like running like your pants are on fire. You can only run for so long like that. I ended up getting caught. 
and uh, they found the bank bag under the car. This was like from a, you know, like a, not a bank, but from like a, whatever I robbed gas station or 7-Eleven or whatever it was. And uh, so they knew I robbed something and they ended up catching Barb. When, when, when I got out and started running, all the cops went running after me and she just said, she just opened the door and started walking down the street. <laughs> like maybe a half hour, an hour later, they caught her. And uh, she, uh, they said, listen, we don't, I don't know what you did, but we know you did something and she's gonna go down with you. And I just, I said, you know what? I said, this is gonna take a while Get and have a seat because we're going to be here for a long time. I'm going to tell you everything I've done under this condition. You have to let her go because she didn't have the damn thing to do with it. She's just out drinking and getting high with me. She didn't, wasn't involved in any of this stuff. So they let her go. And uh, I sat down and told them about, about 25 robberies that I could remember in the last month and the cars that I stole and everything. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to go to jail and then have a detainer put on me two weeks before I get out because they found out about something else that I did. So I'm just like, I'm getting all this stuff out. And, uh, so I ended up going to Baltimore County Detention Center. Even though I got locked up in Baltimore City, the majority of my robberies were in Baltimore County. So they transferred me out to their detention center and, uh, I attempted, I was there for maybe three or four weeks and I attempted to escape out of Baltimore County Detention Center and almost got out. Thank God I didn't, but uh, I was in another inmate cell and I, they have bunk beds and between the bunk beds, there's like a piece of steel that supports them. And I was standing there talking to him and I noticed that one of them, the top weld was actually cracked. And I'm thinking like, man, if I got that three inch piece of steel, that three foot long piece of steel, I can probably get through these windows. And uh, I found a couple other guys that agreed like, man, yeah, let's try this. And the guy who sell it was, uh, he didn't want any parts of it, but I'm not a big guy. I'm not a tough guy by any means, but you can say a lot with your eyes and the, you know, the look I gave him is like, you don't have any choice. We're taking your, we're taking your shit. And there's nothing we can do about it. And we did, you know, we laid down on the bottom bunk and put our feet up on the top one. And we just, we all pushed up as hard as we could. And we broke the top well, and then bent that thing back and forth and broke the bottom well. And uh, we went back into my cell and we, there was an there was like a this real heavy duty like mesh screen we we got that off then there was this cast iron grate behind that we got a hole in that big enough to get out then the only thing separating us from the street was like a half inch thick piece of plexiglass we were prying that off when the co's the correctional officers came in it's we're done so i ended up going on lockup solitary for like I was they put me on lockup for six months and at the time I was still like you know if I could have I would have did anything to get out it doesn't matter it's I didn't want to hurt anybody but if that's what it took that's what I would have done and uh it was during that time my parents got me a lawyer and he comes in to see me and he looks at me and he says what the hell is wrong with you 
Like you're already locked up. Can't you even stay out of trouble in jail? And I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like, I guess not. You know, <laughs> he says, don't you realize that if you get your, if you can stay out of trouble, you can be out of here before you're 30 years old and you can, you'll be young enough. You can start a whole new life. Uh-huh. And he said that. And I was just like thinking like, man, I could be, yeah, I mean, it's five years. If he can get me out of this in five years and I will be young enough to start a whole new life. And that was the first piece of hope that I had in, you know, since I was 11 years old, it was like, I can, I can do this. Like I was for the first time excited, even though I'm in jail, you know, on lockup, I was excited about the potential to have like a normal life and uh, a respectable life. And so during my time on lockup, I just, you know, I started thinking about myself and it's like, you know, how I got to where I'm at, you know, my feelings that were involved with it, my circumstances, I accept hundred percent responsibility for everything that's happened to me. Maybe things happened that weren't necessarily my fault, but the way I responded was, and uh, cause we always have control over how we respond to different situations. And so I started thinking about it and I was, you know, reviewing like the things that I'd done in the past. Like I, you know, I tried AA, I tried NA, I tried rehabs, I tried churches, I tried really decent girlfriends living in different states. Like, you know, I was, I tried everything. And then this, this is the weirdest damn thing that happened. It's, I guess it's the law of attraction, people call it. And I don't know if it's like the woo woo, like, you know, the puppeteer pulling the strings or whatever, but it seems like things happen. And so I get off lockup. And I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm still trying to figure out like, how am I going to do this? And I remember like, I read a newspaper article about rational emotive therapy. And I can't remember the guy's name, but it was some psychologist in New York that was talking about, you know, if you think things through to the end before you do anything, then a lot of times you can stop that behavior just by thinking it through. And so I'm starting to put together these different tools that I can use to maybe, you know, build a toolkit that can help me to get my shit together. And then the life-changing event happened. Uh, I was on the tier and there was a book laying on one of the tables and it was called, You Can If You Think You Can. Hmm. The author was Norman Vincent Peale. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was also the author of a more famous book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And so, you know, I picked up the book and I looked at it and I thought, I got plenty of time. And, uh, and this looks like a pretty good book. So yeah, I'll read it. I mean, I got nothing to lose. I got everything to gain and nothing to lose. And so I started reading this book and this author, he convinced me that I could, I am the master of my life. I can control my life and my life can turn out however I want, but I have to believe that I can do it first. And so what happened was the shift. It was in the middle of the book. I'm halfway through it. And I'm getting like, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Just telling you the story. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. And it was like, it was just like that. Like just some switch went off and I took, I had a half pack of cigarettes. You could smoke in jail back then. And I handed them to this guy, Frank. And I said, Frank, I quit smoking. Here you go. I had a couple cartons in my cell. And uh, that's like money in jail. So I'm not giving those away, but I'm giving you the open ones. And uh, I thought that uh, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to start by quitting smoking just to prove to myself that I'm serious 
and to show my family, like I mean business, like I'm not, like I'm not playing, I'm done. And uh, a few things happened during the next, you know, four years that I was locked up that were really good things. I mean, like I saw, I saw prison as an opportunity. I saw prison as like, this is my rehab. And just because I have to do this time doesn't mean I have to waste it. You know, I can get a lot out of this time. And we've heard that before. Oh, it, we've heard that from other people. And I think, yeah, it's valid. It was, it's very valid. It was, it was a great opportunity for me. And that's how I saw it. This is an opportunity. And uh, as it turns out, when I got all my sentences, you know, for these different jurisdictions and all, it wound up to be 10 years and nine months. And uh, I ended up doing four years and nine months on that 10 year, nine month sentence. And uh, but during the meantime, what I did was I started to realize that a lot of the reasons that I was like screwing up so much and making these bad decisions is because I just felt like, well, that's who I am. Like I'm a loser. Mm. I'm a bum. And like, that's what losers do. We make bad decisions. So I was giving myself permission to live like that. And what I did was I sat down in my cell and I still remember this. I mean, I said, okay, I'm going to write down a list of all the good things that I've done. And I'm like, mm. it ain't going to be a big list. But I'm going to write that down and I'm going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus about all my failures and losses and lies and all the terrible things I've done. I'm going to focus on the good. And so the first thing on the list was I quit smoking cigarettes. It was the first. <laughs> and then it was, it wasn't a lot, but it was like, I remember that time you helped that lady change her flat tire in the parking lot at the grocery store. It's like, that was a good thing to do. And then, so I, I, I had that list and then I started to ask myself, what were you, because you don't even know who you are. Like when you're coming out of this addiction, you're like, well, what do normal people do? Like, I don't even know what they do. Right. Cause all that I know is like, you know, getting high and drinking and having sex with people. I don't know. And now it's like, all of a sudden it's like, okay, you're not going to do any of that stuff. So now what? And so I thought, well, and, and what kind of, I don't even know, like, well, what kind of person are you like, like, cause you've been doing all those, you know, terrible things. Like what kind of person are you? And I realized, I thought to myself, I was, well, who were you before you started getting high? What were you like when you were 11? And I thought to myself, you know, when I was 11, I was good. I was a good kid. I mean, I was like nice to people. I was polite. I was respectful. I used to go around, you know, knocking on doors, collecting money for different charities, especially the, uh, who was the one, Jerry... Um, you're Jerry's kids. Yeah. Yeah. We used to go, yeah. used to go like knocking on doors for Jerry's kids to collect money and yeah. drop that off at the high school and um, didn't steal any money out of it for candy or anything. I probably thought about it, but I never did. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's who you really are. Like that person, that pre-drug addict person, that's you, that's your core. And I didn't, this isn't an excuse for anything, but I thought this, person between then and now that's that person under the influence of drugs that's not who you are that's that person under the influence of drugs and you can take any wonderful person and put them in this life and they're going to maybe respond the same way yep and so i kind of began to feel different about myself instead of feeling like the bum the loser the you know all these bad things about myself i thought you know you're a nice guy you've done the best you could with the hands you've been dealt you know I didn't, I didn't meet my father at all. I was like 17 or 18. Cause he was like me and he was a druggie and just didn't care about me. And, uh, and I just thought like, that's not who I am. You know, that's, 
that he's got his own stuff. I met him a couple times since then. Actually, the last time I saw him, I stole his car. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he deserved it. <laughs> and uh, so the uh, so anyway, what we won't go there. But you make such yeah. a good point in that you're focusing on who you really are, yeah. and that's not the drugs. And I know there's more to your story and I want to hear more to your story, but you know, that's a, that's a, that's a heavy duty takeaway message for anybody that's listening is that, you know, if you've got a loved one that's dealing with drug addiction, you're not dealing with the person that you know and love. You're dealing with the addiction. That's right. what's there. And it, you know, that's it. And I, I didn't, you know, I had to figure that out for myself because again, you know, I, there was nobody there to guide me. And, and I, I think that again, we've come so far in our understanding of addiction over the last yep. 20 or 30 years. Yep. And uh, and I'd already kind of burned my bridges with all the other stuff. And so what happened was, uh, and I, I'm only speaking for myself when I say this, because I know that a lot of people don't like this part of my philosophy, but this only applies to me. It doesn't apply to anyone else. But with with the AA and the NA and all that stuff, uh, I haven't, I've been to two AA meetings since I got out of prison. I got out of prison in May of uh, June of 1994 and I went to two meetings and it was really like, I was going to just do the 12 step thing. Like I want to help other people. And uh, I left both meetings in the middle because I realized I'm like, I'm really not welcome here because I don't, I follow my own version of the 12 steps. And one of the things is for me, and again, this is just the way I saw things is this addiction thing that I was handed like these, these genes or whatever it is. Like, I didn't ask for this. This was the hand that I was dealt from the higher power. Like they gave me this. And when I do good, so the, the rooms say, well, if you do bad, it's your fault. If you do good, thank your higher power. And I reversed that. And I said, well, the higher power is the one that gave me these bad genes. If I do good, I'm going to take credit for it because I'm the one that's doing the work to make these good things happen. I'm the one doing it alone. And so I'm going to give myself the credit. And when I give myself the credit, I feel better about myself. And when I feel better about myself, I'm able to do more good things. And so I turned everything backwards. And, and again, this is, I'm going to go back even further. Like when I was trying to figure it out, I was looking on the outside for the answers. And when I figured it out, I figured out that the answers were on the inside. It's not the outside. Right. Right. And, and so the result of that is, I, I get tingles just talking about it. <laughs> I have not had the desire. I've never had to say, man, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not going to get high today. I'll do it. Like I've never, like the desire has been lifted off of me. And I know I can't do it. I know if I do, it's like Russian roulette, except there's like five bullets in one empty chamber. It's like, I would, right. you know, so it's like, why would you take that risk? <laughs> exactly. And I have no desire to get back to that, but I, let me, I'm going to come to something that's, that's a good thing. Um, so about six months before I got to prison, well, actually, when I first got locked up and I was in the detention center, I wrote to that girl from high school and uh, I just wanted to let her know how things turned out. And she figured that's how it was. She saw like a wanted poster with a drawing and the picture in the drawing looked like me and she thought it was probably me. And... Uh, so I just wanted to let her know how things turned out. And then about six months before I got out, I wrote her again to see how she, and she had a girl, a boyfriend back then and all that stuff and things were going well. And I was, I was 
like extremely happy for. Like she graduated from college, had an apartment, had a boyfriend, had a career. And uh, and I was in jail where I figured I'd be. She was where she thought she'd be and I was where I thought I'd be. And, uh, or, you know, and so anyway, uh, I wrote her about six months before I got out. And I wanted to just set the story straight with her and just tell her the, you know, the truth. Uh, but the first thing I did was I just wrote her a letter saying, Hey, you know, getting ready to get out. Hope all's well. Got my AA degree in prison, you know, quit smoking. You know, I actually got a bank loan when I was in jail. I had a job lined up before I got out. Uh, I'll tell you about the bank loan in a minute. <laughs> it was a little awkward. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I wrote her a letter and she wrote me back and, uh, she said, okay, well, that's good. I'm happy for you. So, you know, by the way, don't write me anymore. And, you know, I like, I'm, I'll put this. I'm fairly creative with figuring out my ways around different problems. I've noticed, yeah. I've noticed from your story. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write her one more letter. I'm going to tell her everything that I've always wanted to tell her and didn't have the balls to tell her. I'm going to tell her why I really broke up with her and, uh, and how bad I feel about it. And then I'm happy how well she's doing. And so I sent that letter and I think it took me three days to write it. You know, I just wanted to make sure every word has a meaning to it. There's no fluff. This is like very woven together. And, uh, she wrote me back like a, maybe two weeks later, I got a letter from her and she said, you know, well, on second thought, we can continue to write. And then uh, a couple months later, she came up to see me. A few months, you know, she came up to see me a couple times. And then uh, I got out of prison, I think June, I think it was June 6th of 1994. June 15th of 1996, we got married. Wow. Yeah, we're still how cool is that well done <laughs> yeah we're still married and uh she's home now so hope she doesn't hear all this <laughs> <laughs> so, well, she probably knows most of it yeah she does and so <laughs> i just i want to sum up with some of the good things that have happened yeah um, so what happened was uh i guess it's about 10 years ago you know, I felt a lot of guilt for many years about all the stuff that I'd done. It's really just terrible because that's, I, I'm, I did it, you know, it, right. there's no way around that. I'm responsible right. for the drama and the trauma that I brought to so many people's lives. Whether I was under the influence or not, is irrelevant. I did it. Yeah. And I felt a tremendous amount of guilt for that. And so I looked up the cop that locked me up when he caught me in the stolen car, you know, like that cop, I looked him up on Facebook and I found him. Oh my. Yeah, it's probably the same thing. He's dead. <laughs> uh. So I sent him a message and I said, Excuse me, you know, my name's Mark Owens. Uh, I think, you know, used to work in Eastern District, of Baltimore City Police. Yeah, I think you arrested me in September uh, of 1989. Was that you? And he never responded. Of course he didn't. And, uh, <laughs> I wrote him back, you know, I waited a couple of weeks and then I wrote him back, you know, I sent him another message and I said, oh, listen, I just want to let you know you saved my life. 
and I, I really appreciate it. And I just want you to know how sorry I am for all the shit that I did. And that I'm married, I've got a son, I've got a very successful business. Like my life is like going better than I could have ever imagined. And uh, I just want you to know that I really appreciate it. And today we're friends. I've got his phone number to my phone. You know, we talk on the phone occasionally. Uh, we met shortly after that and spent three hours standing in a parking lot talking. Wow. And then I went out, the Baltimore County detective that was, that was looking for me, uh, they didn't catch me. They were putting it all together. Like, who is this guy? It's like, you know, right. stores and we can't catch him. <laughs> and uh, his, I don't, I don't want to mention his name on here, but uh, I want to respect his privacy. But I ended up, I looked him up on the internet and I found out that he's actually an attorney today. He was a robber detective and now he's a private attorney. So I sent him an email and I said, Hey, this is Mark Owens. Uh, you might remember me. And uh, I said, I think I owe you a lunch, you know, because they, <laughs> they got me at McDonald's and I was confessing to all this stuff. They went and got stuff at McDonald's. And uh, we ended up meeting for lunch. I took him out to lunch and we talked and I just, you know, told him how things turned out and that I'm really, you know, I just wanted him to know that I was really sorry for the stuff that I did. Like I really, I'm sorry that I did that stuff. And then, you know, it's hundred percent my responsibility. And uh, of course they don't hear a lot of, you know, guys they locked up coming back to them and saying that stuff. But to me, it was just very important. And that's like, that's a rooms thing. That's like making amends. And I, I run my own version. I'm not following any steps, but I just go with my heart. It's like, you know, I did some shitty things and I feel bad. And I want to apologize for the, for the stuff that I did. And, uh, and I think that, you know, the apology will never take away the pain, but if people at least see that you're sincere and that you've lived, that you've turned your life around, it at least brings some happiness to them, to most of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not only does it help them, but it helps, it does so much to help you because you get to really take responsibility for your own life, for things that you did. And, you know, I think, I think I'm going to wax rhapsodic here for a minute, but I think that sometimes when someone is an addict and they continually relapse, I think there's so much guilt involved in that in terms of what they're doing to the people around them, that when you can come out the other end and take responsibility for some of that, I think, I think it's unbelievably valuable. It was for me. I mean, it's like today, uh, I still, I still feel bad about stuff, but I feel like I've been, clean long enough and I've done like I've done more good than bad now like I've finally this you know the scales have tilted and you know I get I got a call two weeks ago actually it was a text message from uh, a, a gentleman that I know a little bit and he wanted to thank me because his 17 year old son heard me speak somewhere mm. he started following me and that I've really made a major impact on his life and wow. this was about like the, you know, a different, like my business stuff that I'm involved in, not necessarily the addiction stuff, but uh, it made a difference in his life. And then the same day, I got a call from another person that uh, just wanted to thank me for all the help that I've given them through like my different speaking things and just being open and transparent with how I run my business. So it was like 
two things in one day like that. And so for me, like when you're able, like with this podcast, if you can, if I can spend a couple hours of my time, time is my most valuable asset, but if I can spend a couple hours of my time and possibly help somebody that I'll never meet, I'll never know, but just knowing that it might work, like somebody might watch this or listen to this and think about things in a slightly different way where it makes a significant difference in their life. Like that's worth my time. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you taking, uh, having that viewpoint because I think that your story is so powerful and it, it's going to impact the lives of somebody that's going to listen, you know, it's going to do that. And that's, that's why we do what we do in the podcast. And I know that time is money for you. So you are a very successful real estate investor. Is that the right way? Yeah. Yeah. So I know that time is money and I really appreciate you not only spending the time with us, but being willing to be as candid with your story as you have, because, you know, we, we have spoken to former addicts who just really don't want to share that story in a public way. And I get it. I do. I understand it. But I also know that how powerful it is when someone like you does share your story. So I can't thank you enough. Doing no, that. no, I appreciate it. I mean, I just, I just feel like being transparent, brutally honest, you know, that's just, that's what makes the difference. Uh, this isn't like a canned presentation. This is just a conversation mm-hmm. with you and I, and I'm, I don't think you made any of that up. I'm just going to oh, say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I would lie the other way and say, no, I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it's, you know, it's, there's, you know, I mean, that's, that's the tip of the iceberg, you know? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today. I, I really, really appreciate it. Can I talk about one more thing real quick? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd, I'd mentioned this bank loan thing when I was in jail. I was like, Oh yeah. So I just want to kind of clarify that. So when I was in jail, like, you know, I'd actually saved money. Like I, you know, I was selling stuff, like people send you money from the street, you buy with, you know, a box of little Debbie's and you lend them out two for one and all this stuff. And, uh, so I was able to actually save some money. So I had $500 sitting in my commissary account. And I asked my grandmother, I said, can you help me open a bank account? And uh, she said, sure. So I sent her a money order. And I, I can't remember, I, I'm, everything was through the mail, but I ended up opening a bank account with the bank. And then I thought, okay, well now I want to borrow my $500. And it'll be a secure loan. So the bank has nothing to lose. They've already got my money. They're just lending my, my own money and I'm paying them interest for it. And so they agreed and they sent me my $500 back. And then I was sending them a money order every month for like 20 bucks or whatever it was. My whole thought was, I'm going to start to establish credit. I've never had credit. You know, it's like I spent all my utility bills on drugs. I spent all my rent money on drugs. I have no credit at all. And I was reading some books and reading about, you know, getting your financial life together. And I thought, well, you know, it's important to have credit. So I, I started that bank thing. And when I got out, I went and paid off the rest of the loan. And that's how I actually began to establish credit in prison. Hmm. And that's what I mean. Like, just because you have to do the time doesn't mean you have to, like, you're not going to lose the time. You can still get so much out of it. Well, you can choose. You can either choose to lose that time or you can choose to make something out of it and make something out of yourself and learn from it and expand. We've had a couple of people who've done that on the podcast yep. and that's a personal choice, just like you, just like you made. Yep. So that was just, that's just another thing just because, 
And I just, the takeaway from that for people is it doesn't matter what your situation is. Like it, you know, you can be in a bad situation, but there's always other stuff that you can do. It's how you respond to it. You can sit in the hospital or the prison or whatever, feeling sorry for yourself and beating yourself up, or you can say, okay, well, here I am, I'm stuck here. What can I do to improve my life? Yep. And that's when, if you can do that, then you can, you can have an amazing life. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks again, Mark. Awesome yeah, story. Welcome, <laughs> Thank you for listening today. I know it was a long episode. I hope you stayed until the end. His story is unbelievable and you have to be sure and hear the end. Of course, it's ridiculous for me to say that because it's the end now, but I'll try and put in the description that people should stay or if nothing else, fast forward to the end of the story because he has such good messages about, um, you know, looking at the goodness that's within you. We all need to do that. It's very easy to do bad things and then get focused on the bad things and the guilt. And we forget to look at the good things and we need to do that on a regular basis. Also, you know, we have had many different people on this podcast who have their own way of getting clean and sober and staying clean and sober. And there is no one way for everyone. So find your way. That's my message to you. Find your way. And we'll be back again next week and we will have another interview. And once again, thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.